0: If you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I highly recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about experience, talking about graphic design. We're talking about what does it look like to create experiential graphic design. And we're talking to Kate Otte, professional graphic designer, with a real understanding, a real great understanding of what it looks like to create a wonderful experience through graphic design. Kate, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, really excited to have you here. This is something I feel like most people have probably never heard of. This is something I had never really heard of much. And I work pretty closely with graphic designers on a regular basis. Uh, I'm pretty, you know, plugged in to this part of the industry and and as a publisher and having to think through these things and all the stuff that goes along with creating cards and boards and maps and stuff like that. And I'm excited just to dive into understanding maybe a little bit better how to create a wonderful, accessible, excellent experience for my players through graphic design, through all the things that go into cards and boards and all that good stuff. And uh, But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design, graphic design, all that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, so I'm Kate Audie. I'm a designer here in Philadelphia. Um, I majored in uh, graphic design in college and then landed a job out here um, at a firm called Cloud CloudGeshen, which is an experiential graphic design firm. I actually, when I moved here, I, I didn't really have any, any hobbies, but since moving here, I've picked up two, which is rock climbing and playing board games. And those have kind of, all of these passions have kind of come together with this uh, project and the the first game that I'm, I'm working on first ascent.
0: Very cool. And so what got you into designing a game? Did you play a bunch of new kind of modern board games? You're like, Oh, I could do that. or, Or what happened?
2: yeah so i i really did not grow up playing games i played card games anyone from the midwest has probably heard of euchre that's what i was really into um and yeah when i moved here i some friends introduced me to some of the more modern games and it completely clicked for me like i loved i of the strategy component and as i kind of expanded who i played games with it I noticed there was a lot of overlap between climbers that liked these very uh, strategic board games, and but we didn't have a climbing board game to play. So it just seemed like, okay, let's make it happen. Um, and I'm always kind of taking on these little side projects. So it just seemed like a really good fit. I mean, climbing is a three-dimensional puzzle. Um, so a lot of the same problem-solving, planning, uh, it is already there. It just needed to be translated into a game.
0: Very cool. Now you say little side project. I don't know if I would call this one a little side it's, project. It's <laughs>
2: definitely not. It's. I kind of went into it, not really knowing what it was going to be like, but I, I definitely enjoy like immersive, bigger than you ever expected um, type projects. I, I just, I love things that I can be obsessed about. So this was this was really great for me to kind of fall into on a whim. Um, and you know, I felt like people people were really responding to it. Um, like I said, I was playing with a lot of climbers and they they were really encouraging. Um, so it was it was nice to have that support along the way.
0: Awesome, and you're one of those rare people, one of those Ryan Lockett types. It does the game design, the graphic design, the art, the illustration. You're, you're a one-person show, and uh, I'm just excited to, to talk through like how do you put a game together to create this really uh, accessible, really great experience, uh, specifically through thinking about the experience through uh, graphic design. And that, let's get started with a like a good working definition. What does it mean to, to pursue experiential graphic design?
2: Yeah, so I think a lot of people, when they think of... Uh experience design, the first thing that might come to their head is user experience, which is designing for people to interact with digital spaces. But what I do is is basically the analog version of that. I design tools for interacting with physical spaces. So, we kind of have three pillars that we work in. We have um, wayfinding. So, if you imagine uh, our clients are hospitals or college campuses, and we look at how people move through those spaces, what problems are they facing, what's confusing, and then we'll design um, uh, digital apps, um, we'll design signage, maps, we'll advise on policies like restructuring their parking, anything like that that has to do with wayfinding, we'll consult on. Uh, We also do branding for environments. So if you think of a company that just built a new building, and they want it to feel like them, and they want their employees to know where the company has come from, what, who are their customers, why are their customers important, what are their values, what's the personality of the company. We make the space feel right for the people inside the building. And then we also do storytelling, um, which can be educational, like uh, if there's a trail that has a lot of history running through, it, we'll do you know, interpretive panels that explain, you know, this old mill was on the river in the 1800s, or um, it could also be, we've also worked on memorials, um, anything that tells the story of the place as you're moving through
0: it. Okay, so we're not just talking about reading materials or things that you would find in a brochure or in our case, cards or boards or anything like, anything like that. You're talking about literally anything that's in a physical space your firm or you personally can be working on the overall experience of how the person is like you're saying parking or walking in the front door into the lobby or running down a trail that is so such an interesting job now is this a new thing is this kind of like a new approach to things because i feel like i've it's, never heard anybody talk about this kind of
2: it's very very niche <laughs> i will say that it's um we work very collaboratively with landscape architects, um, interior designers, we work with planners, um, really all. So we might be a little bit behind the scenes in some cases. We definitely have projects where it's a success if no one notices the design necessarily. And what I mean by that is if you don't notice that, wow, this hospital is really confusing. And the only thing you experience is like, I have an appointment at this place. Oh, I found it easily. All of this made sense. Every, all the information I'm getting is consistent. Um, then we've done our job there. Um, and then there's other projects where you really want to call attention to the design because you want people to come over and learn something.
0: Yeah, that's something I've talked to several graphic designers in the board game industry about is great graphic design, in a lot of ways, just kind of fades into the background. And the less people notice it, the better. If they're noticing the graphic design, odds are it's because they're frustrated by it, or it's it's hard to understand, or it's hard to read, or that kind of thing. And so has that been your experience as far as the board game space is great graphic design just kind of fades into the background?
2: I think it depends a lot on the game itself. And what what it kind of needs, so I think in some cases the design can do a lot to convey the personality of of the game or convey the the theme of the game when there aren't a lot of other elements that are able to do that. Like if it's a game that's pretty stripped down in terms of its components, the actions are really simple and there's not a lot of opportunities for artwork. Um, the graphics can kind of play a higher Role in in creating that world, um, but for games where there's a lot going on, I would definitely advocate for the design to be pretty simple and just let each individual component and in part, you know, do the heavy lifting for you.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So when it comes to cards boards, boxes, all of that, as far as board games, what are the things just in general, we'll get to maybe some more specific things in, in a minute, but what are the things in general you're thinking through as the experiential graphic designer? Like what are your big priorities in making sure that everything is clear, easy to understand, functional, all that? Well,
2: i I definitely prioritize like what are all the things I can do to make the the time the first time someone plays the game how can i show them in a visual way how to play the game so that you know i have a friend who just when you explain the directions he completely blanks out like he's not listening at all but he mostly plays the game by looking at things and kind of watching other people play and then eventually gets it and you just have to be aware like that's how some people learn um and and also Doing these visual cues help remind people, like even if they were paying attention if you 're not doing it every single turn, you might forget so um, just as an example in in first ascent there 's this tableau building element it 's very similar to splendor where you 're laying down the cards in front of you and they kind of stack up. However, when you get four of a kind, something happens you know you basically earn a token. And that's a simple enough mechanic that it could have been really easy to just tell people you lay down once you get four of a kind in in each column, you get this token, but to make it even easier for people to remember that they need four, we have a little player mat that shows the outline of the cards it shows that you should be stacking them in a category, and it gives a little place for anything that you accumulate throughout the game. So that's an example of something that maybe a really experienced board gamer wouldn't need. They would think it's pretty, you know, they would have played enough games that's very intuitive for them. But it's helpful enough for people who are playing for the first time or haven't played in a while that it just makes it so much easier for them to understand what they need to be looking for um, as as they play the rest of the game.
0: OK, that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any like best practices or tips and tricks for making things clear for new gamers, either whether it's just a, a new player to the game or a new gamer in general, anything that you would say is, these are like really good things to be thinking about or, or to do to make their experience as good as possible?
2: Well, I think differentiating things as much as possible and making the um, the purpose of each object as clear as possible or at least as different as you can. So for instance, I use shape a lot to distinguish what is interchangeable and what is not interchangeable. Um, And tried to, um, and size as well, like, I have two different uh, decks, so people kept, I noticed people were, in the very beginning, were discarding the cards in the wrong deck. So it's like, well, this can just be solved if I make them different sizes. It it didn't matter that I had a different back of the card. It didn't matter that the purpose was completely different and that you drew it at a completely different time. People just kept discarding it in the wrong pile, Um, but that completely went away just by changing the size of the card. And I think that's what good design does of, of where it just makes it, someone would know immediately that they're discarding it in the wrong pile because it doesn't. size doesn't match and similarly with shape they immediately know that this doesn't go in the right place because it doesn't match the shape on the board so i think using using things like contrast in that way of different sizes different shapes are your friends when you're you're trying to explain either that things are the same or that they're different
0: Right, and that's a great example of no matter how intuitive you think the game is, how obvious you think you've made it, when you get into playtesting, the playtesters will show you exactly how clear things are, and you can't just blame the gamers. Uh, If people keep discarding to the wrong pile over and over again, that's on you as a designer, and it's on you to change things and fix things and make things more uh, or make things easier for Players to to realize and see uh, as far as shape. So you mentioned like the shape of the cards or the size of the cards. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, as far as just normal shapes, have you found anything as far as it's really good to use triangles for this or squares for that or anything like that?
2: Um, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say anything like right off the right off the bat as like immediate. You know, always being better. Um, I will say that as far as information, people tend to. Um, you know, we we're used to reading things in a in a certain way. We're used to looking at rectangles. We're used to text being left justified, and we move through information in a very systematic way. We go top to bottom. Um, so if you if you're putting text in, even if the card is a rectangle, but let's say your text is in a shape with a curve on it and people's people will have a harder time reading the text if it's if there's a lot of it and it's not left aligned so if it were following a curve or um, or if it were center justified and we're talking about a couple of paragraph or a couple of sentences um, that's going to be harder for them to read which might not seem like a big deal but in the you know for oh it's you know just a card it'll take them a half second longer to read it but if they're drawing those cards over and over throughout the game and especially for people who aren't strong readers or if they have any any kind of disability that makes a big difference so using you know using headers using good um Uh, typographic standards, like adding enough spacing between your lines, giving it breathing room, and just structuring things in, in the same way that typical information, important information, is organized will help people just have an easier time understanding what they're supposed to do or what the card is supposed to say.
0: Yeah. One thing I found in my own designing is taking cues from things outside the gaming world and trying to bring them in that are familiar. For instance, I've got a story based game that has a, an adventure book. It's got maps and different things like that. And so when you're on a map and you're going to go to another page, there's a number that tells you what page number to go to, you know, to go to the next part of the map. And it has a triangle. So the number is inside of a triangle because a triangle looks kind of like an arrow and it's pointing off the page. And so you you know, just kind of in your brain, it's like, oh, it's pointing. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to go to page 15. And another part of the game is uh, whenever you accomplish certain tasks, you'll have a number inside of a circle. And so if I accomplish task number 15, then I'll fill that in with my pencil and I, I tried to pull that out of. If anybody has ever taken a standardized test, <laughs> well, you filled it in. That, that's what you did. Whenever you accomplished that, you know, the, or answered that question, you filled it in. Uh, another thing I've seen people use is uh, an octagon, because an octagon typically, especially in the states, it means stop. And so there's different things you can bring, you know, out of kind of the, quote unquote the real world and put them into graphic design and put them into your game designing that maybe is a little bit more, a little bit more intuitive, a little bit more natural for how people are already experiencing these shapes or or colors or or that kind of thing. Have you found anything like that in your own designing or own graphic design?
2: I would say in general, if you are leaning heavily on, I guess when it comes to symbols in general, our kind of rule of thumb is questioning, do people know what what that symbol is? Like, is it a universally understood symbol? and um and i think similar to games you can expect people to learn your specific symbols up to a certain point but if it's one that's not used that much then just having a single word to remind people what that symbol is supposed to indicate like you know trade it you know it doesn't necessarily need to explain all the rules of trading or trade with X player, things like that. But just, I think it's important to keep in mind that symbols are only helpful to a certain extent. There's only so many symbols, especially in a new game, that people can remember. And it's good to pair symbols with a word if it's not going to be used all the time, or even if the image is just not that great. Um, Images can be really helpful in, in triggering someone's memory much more quickly. Um, and, and definitely more quickly than often just one word, but when they start to pair a word with a symbol, um, it can be, it can be much more powerful than a symbol on its own. I think I answered a different question, but that's, that's what I would say is that there are, there are certainly some symbols that, that translate really well, but I think, and I think those can be fairly obvious, um. Of and I think should be taken advantage of. Like, if there is a standard, you can definitely customize it to make it unique to you and unique to the game. But, but it's a use that standard to your advantage so that people aren't having to learn an entirely new symbol set when it's communicating a very basic idea that they already understand. So, save the super custom symbols and, um, kind of cryptic ones for when you actually need those.
0: Definitely. All right. So there are some games, you know, kind of following the same line of reasoning. There are some games that use icons to stand for words or phrases or mechanisms or phases of the game, that kind of thing. Then there's some games that use keywords. And now both of these are really good at saving space on your card. And we'll talk about space and real estate and how much, you know, to put on a card and that kind of thing in in a minute. But talk to me about keywords versus icons. Is there kind of like a best practice, like when to use one versus the other? Anything that comes to your mind as far as either one being better than the other for whatever reason or pros and cons or when to use one or the other as far as icons versus keywords?
2: Well, I definitely think that symbols, I... I think symbols are great for resources that people are accumulating throughout the game um because it's something that they're that they know that they need for the entire duration of the game so symbols are best for when they're when you're repeating the word a lot it's on almost every card or chip or you know whatever all of your components if it's in a lot of places and there's a lot of opportunities for someone to learn the symbol then absolutely it makes way more sense it's much faster to people for people to identify a symbol especially when you pair it with a color a distinct color that kind of makes things click even more and uh you'll see people will revert if they don't um if they didn't take the time to learn all of the exact names for the resources, they'll just revert to color and the game still functions, which is really what, what you want, is that if people are trading or asking the person in charge of the bank uh, to give them a certain resource, if they can just say the color to say what they mean, then there's no kind of lag or, or miscommunication. Um, whereas if they're a little bit harder to distinguish or if they're all the same color, then you know, there's just that like moment of hesitation, Um, which again, like those little moments can really add up and kind of detract. It takes people out of the game.
0: Yeah, I've seen this happen quite a few times when playing like science fiction games where someone or the designer has, you they're using some kind of resource that is a little bit abnormal or maybe it's a little bit hard to pronounce or we're not even sure how to pronounce or whatever. And so someone will just say, yeah, hand me a green one as opposed to saying whatever the resource is thematically in the game. And so I, I think that's something to definitely keep in mind.
2: Yeah. And I, and I think that, that, that is also a really good example of when, when you might want to have, even if it's not on every card, but you know, somewhere that reminds people um, if it is a difficult to pronounce resource, you know, just have the icon with the, uh, with the name to remind people if they want it, whether it's on their reference card or um, somewhere on the board.
0: Yeah, definitely. Let's keep talking about color because I know color plays a big role in this, especially when it comes to making sure the games are accessible and colorblind friendly. So tell me about that. Tell me your thoughts, tell me your best practices.
2: Yeah. So I think one, um, I think in general, it's good to remember that color blindness. There's a lot of varieties of color blindness. There's some that are more common than others. So, um, really, the best way to accommodate and anticipate any any issues with color blindness is to make symbols um, redundant, for for lack of a better word, make color, make them distinguishable besides just color. Um, so maybe they're slightly different shapes. Maybe they have a different pattern in them um, and also use contrast. So an issue with color blindness is based on hue, but it's they can still see value. So if you, you know, let's say if you had two colors, if you make one a little bit darker and one a little bit lighter, despite what hue they are, people will still be able to very easily tell the difference between those two. Um, so that's the, you know, those I would say are the most important things to consider. Um, and then outside of that, outside of color blindness, um, contrast is in a lot of ways even more important than just pure color. Um, contrast plays a role in looking at typography and just making things clear to read. That's, that's something that's especially important for people who have low vision if you have you know black type on a gray background that's so much harder for them to read than if you were to make something higher contrast and that doesn't mean that every card needs to be you know white with black type but if you are going to um, kind of push the envelope in how close their values are you'll have to compensate with a larger type size so you know, if you're really trying to get away with a small font, make sure your contrast is just about as high as it can be. And that'll, you know, help with the legibility.
0: Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Now let's keep talking about people who struggle with with low vision. I feel like that's something that doesn't get talked about very often. Colorblindness gets talked about a ton, but not not low vision. Uh, What are some other best practices or best or, or things to be thinking about to really make sure that people uh, who who you know wear glasses or maybe they're a little bit older. Uh, I know personally I, I can feel my age a little bit because now I can I can already tell even though I'm only in my mid 30s like my vision is getting a little bit worse and so some cards I have to bring a little bit closer to my face even though you know I, I'm not old by any stretch. And so what are uh, some things that that I should be thinking about as a designer or as a graphic designer as far as making my game as accessible as possible for people to look on the board. And maybe they're sitting kind of far away from the board, and to make things clear, or they have cards that you know the font size is legible and any of that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, so I think that something that comes up a lot is uh, you know people are trying to make their their cards fit in the world that they're creating. They want the font to to match that world. The problem is that highly stylized fonts a lot of times are really hard to read when it's more than just one or two words. Um, so if you, I would really recommend reserving those highly stylized fonts for just your headers, like just to introduce the, the topic or if it's a, you know, one word on a chip or a card, then that's, that's fine. But if you're going to ask someone to read a sentence, put it in a highly legible font and a way that you can tell something is highly legible is if basically the, the, Stroke weight of the letters, so how thick the letters are. If it's fairly consistent, um, you know, fonts with a lot of variation in in their thickness can be harder to read because those really thin parts drop out. So, so that's something to keep in mind. If you can, um, this is getting very much into the into the weeds, but finding a font with a high x height. Um, the X height is the height of a lowercase letter. So basically, if you just put, you know, fill a page of in a Word document with a bunch of words, it can be any, any word, and then highlight each line and set them all to a different font. And then look, compare the X height of them. Look at how tall the lowercase letters are in relation to the height of the uppercase letter. And that I mean, I would say that that exercise is really only if you're like, I only have room for a small, a small font on my cards, but that's the only way I can get this to work, then that is really imperative that that can um, in a lot of a lot of times, that can be more legible than a different font um, at a bigger size. So that that high X height, it can be really, really important.
0: Okay, that's great advice. Now, is there a rule of thumb as far as font size? Like don't go below eight point or 10 point or anything like that?
2: Yeah, I would say I definitely would not go below eight point for anything that you want them to to read. I, I mean, honestly, larger than that is going to be much more comfortable. Like, um, you know, if it's fine text for like on, you know, except in this case or on the next turn or things if it's just a segment of it then yes that's fine also keep in mind that you know the smaller the font goes um the thinner those stroke weights are so if you do have to use a smaller font size and going into that you know 8 7.5 zone try using um try using the bold version or try selecting a font that has a kind of heavier um, stroke weight without getting too like bulbous. Um, You know, you don't want every every letter to just become a, a big mark that's indistinguishable, but just slightly thicker can actually go a pretty long way.
0: Gotcha. Now, this might be a bit of a, a style preference, but do you have any thoughts on the number of fonts to have on a card or the number of different types of fonts to have in a single area, whether it's a board or a player board? Because I've seen some cards and they'll have a different font, like a totally different font for every single section. The header would be different. The flavor text is different. The, the actual like description of the card, everything's totally different. Is, there, is that really just my personal preference or is there really something to be th- uh, thinking about as far as... The, the cards and the fonts and that kind of thing.
2: Well, I tend to choose, I tend to choose fonts based on like the flexibility that I have with them. Um, you know, so if I, if I see that a font is only available in one weight, I'm probably not going to use it. I'm going to look for a different, I want a workhorse. Like I want a font that I can find a bold an italic, maybe a condensed version. and. You know, to to an outside person, they might not realize it's all the same font family, but they might notice if you don't do that, because they'll look um, well, obviously you notice that there's there's different different fonts kind of being mismatched together and they don't quite look right. I would say in general with font choices, and it, it can be pretty challenging when you first start out of like, I don't know what the right answer is, but um I mean, the right answer is always that it's a choice that's purposeful. So you kind of have to set some ground rules when you start of like, okay, I I think I want a different font for headers, or I'm going to need, um, maybe I don't want a different font for this flavor text, but I am going to put it in a different color so that people understand immediately like this is flavor text this isn't what you do and make uh you can use the same font but still distinguish it with things like color or organization um and and kind of keep things controlled i I think it's always better to start with a more limited palette so to speak and then add fonts as you need them rather than Going the opposite. You should always try to keep things as consistent as possible because people do pick up on those kinds of patterns um, of, you know, when things don't really match, but they, but they thought that they had the same relationship. And then when the fonts don't match, it kind of, you know, makes them second guess that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like a lot of times designers, they get a little bit too excited about their theme and they'll go a little bit too far, especially when it comes to not thinking through the readability or the legibility of the words or the numbers. Uh, For instance, I I bought a game a while back. It was a sci-fi game and the dice were lovely, but the numbers on the dice were basically impossible to read like is this a two is this an eight like it was the font they used was absolutely dreadful and so i ended up just going in, into a different game and pulling out some normal old d6s with regular old pips and put those in the game because i could see oh that's a two oh that's a four uh, that's an eight you know like or getting you know bigger dice and things like that but i feel like just be like you're saying maybe less is more uh, don't overdo it don't try to be too clever maybe even too thematic to the point where it's impossible to actually read or understand what's going on
2: yeah i remember um one of my first design professors she was talking about how oh i i won't use a font because i don't like the capital g and at the time I thought that was like so ridiculous and also how would you know that? But over time like that's a perfectly good reason to not use a font. If you've noticed <laughs> while you're typing things out there's so many fonts available and there's so many free fonts, I mean especially with if you're using Adobe Creative Cloud, you have thousands of fonts to choose from and like I'm a professional graphic designer, I can't tell the difference between half of them. Like they do look very similar. So if you find, oh, the numbers on this font are kind of weird, or oh, the capital G is funky, or you know, some fonts will have flourishes on some of the letters, and then it um, it intersects with the bottom line of text and makes that line of text hard to read. It's just find a similar different font that doesn't have that issue
0: Yeah, for sure. All right, let's talk about low light because I feel like this uh, is also something that kind of contributes to people struggling that maybe have low vision or color blindness uh, is you know a lot of times we play games at night, a lot of times we play games indoors. Uh, Most of us don't have fluorescent lighting in our houses where the game board or the cars are just lit up and it's real obvious. And so uh, tell me about things to be thinking about when you have a low light situation, because a lot of times colors will kind of look the same. I've played some games where the red and the orange were basically the same color, especially when, when you got in a low light situation. So how can I kind of be thinking about that? How can I design for that so it doesn't become a problem?
2: Yeah, well, I definitely think redundancy is is your friend when thinking about all these situations. So if things are color coded, um, being redundant with, with what they mean when you have space to do that, um, and having like this dual um dual feature, it can be easier when someone is scanning a uh, you know, a board if they're looking for a certain like an And it's kind of made up of these different types of tiles that have different colors, but they all say the name of, it doesn't say red, green, blue, they're, they're coded to something else, but um, being redundant in that sense, I think another thing to keep in mind is just the size and area that people are playing in, you know, for example, um, if people are mostly focused on just a board in front of them, or relatively small space in front of them that's a lot easier for them to comprehend in a low light situation than if they're interacting with a large board in front of them like and i think that that's important to keep in mind regardless of the game or lighting situation that is is this uh taking up so much real estate that it, it's actually difficult for people to see on the opposite side of the table. Um, and And to at least keep in mind, like, is there a way, you know, building in these natural breaks either through rounds or you know, a, a natural kind of stopping point that makes sense for someone to get up and look at that part of the board? Um, to see if they want to go there, things like that, but that's definitely, you know, if you can kind of limit how far people need to look, um, that can kind of help with those low light situations.
0: Okay. Makes a lot of sense. All right. Let's talk about people who struggle with dyslexia. I am definitely one of those people and I have played many games that were very frustrating. Uh, for instance, I'm trying to read a rule book that has giant sections of nothing but capitalized letters, like every every word, everything is total, all caps, and that's annoying. And so what are some things uh, we can be thinking about? What are some ways that we can uh, best uh, improve the experience for people who struggle maybe with reading in general or struggle with dyslexia, anything like that?
2: yeah, so we um we always try to uh, write in using plain language principles. I think that's something that a lot of cities and some companies have adopted. but if you're not familiar with it, it is good to to just brush up on what those principles are, which is essentially short sentences don't use unnecessary jargon um, outside of, you know, of course, you're going to have some, Jargon associated with your game, but if it's not specific to the game, don't use it. You know, use words that people use in everyday language. Um, also, nobody likes the the waterfall of text. Grouping uh, your rules into thought paragraphs, and that also makes it it doesn't just make it easier for people to read the first time. It also makes them makes it easier to read when they're referencing the rule book and just trying to find a clarification. So so breaking things out so that things aren't as long. Um, I would also say something that really helps with um, readability is shorter line lengths. So instead of having like 20 words, 25 words per line, being more in the about 10 words per line, um, you know, give or take a couple it just helps legibility. And also, um, I bet most people could stand to have a little bit more space in between their lines of text. Um, it's doesn't quite need to be that the double space standard that that we learned in school. That might be a little bit too much, but oftentimes the default setting puts your text way too close together and it's intimidating to read. It, it looks like one solid block and just by opening up the lines a little bit can really, really help.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Talk to me about hierarchy and how it plays a role in experiential graphic design.
2: So yeah, so I think hierarchy, especially when it comes to board games, it kind of touches on on everything from what people are physically looking at to um, thinking about it in terms of their the arc of their turn or the arc of of the game, and basically the you know hierarchy is all about what is more important than the other thing. So, um, establishing that with your, think think about that with your game. What is the most important thing for people to understand about this game? What it What are they going for? What are they trying to achieve? How does the game end? Like, is there a visual marker of how the game ends? And is that communicated in a really obvious way? Is what the action that they're doing for most of the game occupying a lot of real estate on the board, you know, are things of an appropriate size relative to how important they are in the overall arc of the game. So thinking about like real estate on the board and how obvious it would be if someone t- were to walk up and just look at the components on the board, are they kind of scaled appropriately to their value in the game? Or it It might not just be physical scale, it could be quantity and just making it intuitive in that way. I think also hierarchy is very useful to think about whether your game has that from a teaching point of view and an editing point of view of What's the most important thing for someone to understand about playing the game? You know, they might not get these nuances, they might not get the strategy, but they can play this game if they understand XYZ. And what is the fastest way for me to communicate that so that they can at least get started? And then these other things get layered on uh, over time. So, so that kind of comes into play while you're explaining the game, how you design the rule book, how you design a player reference card. You know what's what's at the very top of the card, or what what is explained um, clearly um, on those cards. Um, and then, of course, as you find things drifting towards the bottom, is not very important at all. You can consider cutting them out completely, as maybe these aren't aren't as important as I thought, and maybe they're not exactly adding as much as I thought they would.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when it comes to cards, do people naturally read top to bottom, left to right, or are there some things that you can do to draw their attention, to draw their eye in certain ways? And I guess the same thing applies to rule books. What do I need to be thinking about as far as the human eye and how it's just kind of naturally drawn to things?
2: Our eyes are very good at picking up patterns so if they see that a card always has some the exact same thing in the exact same place we're going to learn to not read that you know so if you draw if you draw five cards and they all say the same thing on the card they're going to stop reading that so if they draw a sixth card that had something different in the top that was important they might they might miss that so it might just be good to To be aware that those cards might need to look a lot more different if they truly are special cards there might need to be some other design things going on with it like maybe it's a completely different color palette Um, maybe the artwork is very visibly different than what was on the previous cards because it it could easily be glossed over um, if it's just at the top and otherwise looks the same as these other cards before that were the same. I think people also, they they do, <laughs> just in terms of reading, most people scan. You know, a lot of people do not read every single word individually and carefully, and I think that that can be a big benefit of using symbols and structuring your cards with the same language on every card. Like, for instance, if it's always, lose one of x and gain one of the other always have lose before gain or vice versa always have the gain before lose so that even if they're just scanning it they have a much better chance of understanding what the card they can anticipate what the card was going to say um, even if they don't read it all that carefully (laughs)
0: Yeah, this is something to definitely keep in mind with your rule books. For example, a while back, I had a game that I was basically testing the rule book. So I would hand somebody the box of all the components, the cards and everything, and I'd hand them the rule book. And I would say, teach me how to play, just trying to play test the rule book. And they would go through the setup. And what I noticed is that they would go one, two, three, five, six, seven. They would skip four. Like this happened several times in a row. Where people would skip over step number four, even though it's labeled, even though it's in numerical order, and so you think the human brain would go one, two, three, four, but no, because of the way things were laid out, they would they were basically skimming over, and they were naturally skipping over four and going to five, and they were missing an entire step of the setup. And so I went back and added arrows, added some lines, and that seemed to help people kind of go okay line to line to line, you know, arrow to arrow to arrow, that kind of fix things. Do you have any other advice or maybe that's not even good advice. I'm not sure, but tell me about arrows and how they can work. Uh, Are they effective in your rule books and your setup or are there better ways to make sure people go from step one, two, three, four and and see everything?
2: Yeah. So I, I mean, I would say that the, even though I, I felt like I had such a good handle on on information design. The rule book has definitely been a challenge because you are kind of balancing these conventions of what people are used to um, versus the limitations of your page and what you can physically fit on a page and how to explain that in a thorough yet concise way. So I do think it's incredibly challenging, but I will say, um, Sometimes it's worth sacrificing um, something that might not make the best sense in terms of of order. like if you were if you were trying to um, group things in a way that just took someone through a turn or something like that, but it's a funny page break. like if it would end up causing a couple of sentences to fall onto the next page that might be reason to restructure the order of things a little bit and think about grouping things a little differently so that every every page kind of stands, stands alone as much as possible. Um, I also would highly recommend people to work in spread format, like seeing two pages side by side so that you can reference things on the other page like if you don't have room for the diagram on that page but you do have room on the other page or in general just grouping the same concepts if it doesn't fit on one page well can you fit it on two pages and have those right next to each other Um, you want to avoid as much as possible of switching back and forth or terms defined at the beginning that actually don't you know, don't really come into play until nine pages later. So, trying to group ideas together as much as possible, um, I think, is a a general best practice. And I do think that numbers, when when sequence is imperative, when they need to do things in a certain order, you have to use numbers. Otherwise, you know, people will just think that they're principles or that they can be done in, in any order. So definitely use numbers and numbers can also be beneficial when you need to show a diagram with a key. You know, you can kind of key up um, the, the photo or the diagram with the actions that you're taking so that it's just really clear. Sometimes that's a little cleaner than using, um, having a bunch of arrows and lines, which can look a little visually chaotic. Um, you know, depending on how many of them there are, then that can kind of clean things up and still stay very clear.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about playtesting. While you're running a play test, while you're observing, what are you looking for? What are you watching for? What are you taking notes about as far as making sure the graphic design is doing its job, that everything is understandable and clear? What are you looking for? What are you thinking about?
2: Usually when there's a problem, my first thought is okay is this a mechanic issue or is this a communication issue like was this something that isn't very well explained visually on on the board or on the card or or you know whatever and could this just be solved by changing the wording or making that turning that word into a symbol or vice versa removing the symbol and just having the word and you know since design comes a little more easily to me than totally rethinking a mechanic i tried that first and it's like if you can't solve it by explaining it more clearly then it's probably an issue with with the rule you know if if people still aren't getting it when you've done your very best you know i we um ran into this with just the the actions to do on your turn. It was like, no matter how many player reference cards we gave people, it just still wasn't making, it still was not clicking. So um, so yeah, eventually just rethinking how that worked because it, it couldn't be communicated that easily. Um, I think some, some other things that I just try to think about during playtesting is I think it's a real challenge and also keeping in mind that getting feedback is a skill. Like it's not something you're going to be really good at the first time you do it. And when I say good at, I mean, not getting your feelings hurt. It can feel really bad. And also it can be difficult to turn a uh, hard feedback into a positive situation. So I think it, it can be helpful to go into it with the mindset of this is a brainstorming session. Like we are we are here to look at this, but we're mostly going to be thinking of ideas for how to make it better. And as long as you keep that mindset of like these people are on my team because they want this game to improve, it can be a lot easier to kind of put your ego to the side and separate yourself from the project and kind of join their side of the table, try to understand where they're coming from. And it and it's more of this collaborative effort rather than them versus you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you have any specific questions that you'll ask just to try to pull out information from the testers about graphic design or anything?
2: I think a lot of a lot of the questions that I asked were mostly focused on the the feeling of the game or how they felt at certain times of the game and trying to to understand from that point of view um because it it's a better way of me gauging like was this choice that I made successful like is this mechanic working in the way that I wanted it to based on how someone said that they felt when they played the game. So if someone said, well, I felt like every time I rested, I wasn't playing the game. Okay. Well, that's obviously something that I want to change. And, you know, I don't want anyone to feel like they've just completely removed themselves from, from the game. Um, And that, and I think that asking those, very specific like how did you feel when this happened, how did you know what did you think about this when that happened asking very specific questions can often um, help you get more useful answers than just like general what did you think (laughs) kind of kind of questions. Um, And I think definitely um, it can be difficult but I pretty much always ask if I got hard feedback or if someone commented on something that I don't agree with, I don't want to make the change, even though it feels like painful to to ask to bring it up at the next play test, I always bring it up because, you know, I always ask them, well, did you feel this way when when that happened, if someone on a previous play test had mentioned that And just to see if other people are reaffirming and if it's, and if it is something that's a common experience that I think, even though I'm resistant to it, that I think I should address, um, and that can be hard, but if, if enough people say like, no, I didn't think that was overwhelming or no, I didn't think that was unusual, then it can help you feel more confident in moving past that, that issue.
0: Yeah, that's excellent advice. Okay. Is there anything else that we need to highlight? Anything else that, that kind of pops up in your mind as far as experiential graphic design and something you want to make sure people are aware of or know about?
2: Well, I think that it's good, I would just say in general, um, to be aware of people's biases, but still find value in, in what they say. Um, and just to give an example, there was there was one one play test where like clearly one of the play testers just did not get the basics of the, of the game. They just weren't really getting it. So on the one hand, it, it can be easy to be like, well, why would I listen to him? Why would I take his advice? Like he wasn't even playing the game. I'm going to listen to the people who, who did, you know, and, and, um, value their, uh, value their input more. Or there might be someone who is very clearly trying to steer you to make a completely different game than what you were trying to create. But it's good to look past that and try to understand why. Like, OK, this person clearly didn't understand how to play the game. Why? Now now I know the, the problem that I need to fix. And ask questions to help you understand why that happened. Um, so so regardless of what someone said or if um, if they're pushing you in a direction you don't want to go in, like try to see beyond uh, necessarily what what they're saying exactly and kind of go take a few steps outside of what they're saying to understand the why. And then that's the problem that you need to focus on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. OK, this has been excellent. I feel like a lot of this boils down to intentionality. There is no perfect answer necessarily for a lot of these things a lot of these things, whether we're talking about vision challenges, fonts, like all this all this stuff. It really comes down to are you being intentional in your design work, in your graphic design work? Are you reaching out to people that maybe struggle with dyslexia or colorblindness or low vision or whatever it is and talking to them directly and saying, hey. Do you understand this? Can you read this is, that, uh, is this accessible to you? Why or why not and if it 's not, being intentional about trying to fix it now, you might not be able to fix everything and you 're not going to please everybody and that 's just a, a fool 's errand if you 're trying to trying to do that, but at least be intentional about your font choices the the type uh, the font size like all these different kinds of things. And so as, as far as closing thoughts, what would you tell people? What would, what encouragement would you give them as far as being intentional, as far as putting all these ideas, all these concepts together for the graphic design?
2: Well, I think, I think it kind of starts at the beginning. I, you know, at the beginning of all of our projects, we, we go through a kind of programming phase where we define the problems that we want to solve and what to succeed does success look like and we don't define the tools like we don't know how we're going to solve the problem but we do know what we want the solution to include and i think in terms of a board game try to think outside of like what mechanics you want to use and just think of you know what specifically does the experience need to look like what does this game need to have in it like for instance is replayability a top priority or would you rather sacrifice that so that optimal player count you know a a wide range of player count is is more important so kind of think of your priorities for things like that and then also set some goals very theme specific or it might be mechanic specific if you start with that of what what is the most important thing for me to not lose sight of as i go through the game and that can i just found it incredibly helpful to keep going back to those when i wasn't sure what the right next step was um you know i could keep going back to does this align with the overall vision of this game? Like, you know, if I said that I wanted it to be accessible to climbers and people that play a lot of board games, is this skewing too far in either direction um, to have that still be true?
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, hey, you got a game up on Kickstarter right now. Give me the two-minute elevator pitch for that one.
2: Yeah, so um, First Ascent is a rock climbing themed strategic board game it's for two to five players Um, and basically everyone is assuming the role of a different climber and they're trying to climb the best route up the mountain and become the most skilled climber Um, so they're um, you're basically planning your route based on certain objectives you're acquiring resources that allow you to climb. And as you climb, you start to build skills. You can get extra points for um, using good technique. And inevitably there are are things that arise, events that come up every time you climb that pose you with uh, a situation and then you are managing resources, affecting other players or manipulating the board to resolve the situation.
0: Awesome. Well, Kate, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with First Ascent on Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing.